This is Emma Clark. We're here for the Brooklyn Public Library's Our Streets, Our Stories project. It is February 18th, 2016. I'm here at the Park Slope Library with Elaine Archer. So thank you for coming in, Elaine. Where were you born? Well, I was born in London, but I, um, my father was killed in the Second World War. You know how old I am, and I was brought to Canada. I was raised in Canada. Um, not a typical childhood, spent some time in foster homes, which I think perhaps made me more ready to live communally in a way, and then came to this country to go to the university and then moved to New York for graduate school, and then we moved to Brooklyn to live in a commune. Mm -hmm. Want me to go on even further? Yeah. The main, this was the very beginning of the women's movement, and um, we called it the women's liberation movement. The word feminist had not yet been mentioned, and mainly, Unlike today, and it's probably hard to imagine, men took no role in childcare whatsoever in those days, even kind, enlightened men. So the main force in the commune was to get men to get to share childcare so that other women could help you raise your children and men would do their share. So originally two families, um, my, my, my ex-husband and I and a friend and her husband, we had to find, we couldn't afford to do it, we had to find another family, which we did. So there were six adults and five children who bought the house on 6th Street. It was a two-family house, originally built as a two-family house, so it was extra wide and long. It was quite big for a Brooklyn house. People now are amazed that it cost $75,000, but that was a lot of money in those days. You could only get, Brooklyn was, was redlined you could only get a $40,000 mortgage. So we had to come up with $20,000 and we borrowed some money and we were, it was very, very hard financially. But we moved in 1972, Christmas 1972, and we lived together for 13 years as a commune. Um, I mean, I could just keep talking or you could ask me some questions. Okay. Well, the, I have. To, I want to say right from the beginning. Everybody always says, "Oh, you know, sex." There was. It was just agreed right from the beginning. There'd be no sex. No read. We didn't read Marx together. <laughs> we were all very leftist, and we all pretty much agreed. You know, we were against the Vietnam War. We were working in civil rights and in women's health issues, and we just agreed. And we we just sort of knew. We sort of agreed about the raising of children. You know. Not too strict, but not, not too, uh, you know, we, we had very high standards for the children. They participated, they set the table and everything. The biggest challenge in the commune were, was setting up a schedule. And the schedule involved childcare, making dinner, doing the shopping, and doing other household tasks. And getting that together, everybody had to be somewhat flexible in their work, which was not always possible. Um, but I, two of us were teachers at the college level, so we could usually have one day off. Um, and you really, you ended up cooking only one day a week, so we ate incredibly well, um, because somebody cooked a big meal one day a week for 12 people. Um, we were very involved. We had a house, a big house with about, let's see, 12, six bedrooms in the two units. So every, in a way, in a funny way, people had more privacy when we lived communally than they did when we then broke up the commune because we shared living space. That's all we shared. And then every couple had two rooms 
bedroom study, two bedrooms, depending on their work hours. And the children shared about, five children shared three rooms. Um, and probably the biggest issue was decorating the place. <laughs> because that was so unnecessary, you know, we, we were never disagreed about we had to pay the mortgage, we paid the taxes, we fixed the roof when it leaked. We had a very, we had a lot of maintenance issues, but my ex-husband was very handy, so he did a lot of that. Um, to this day, I am close to the two other families that, I have a huge extended family, um, and they all live in Brooklyn, and I don't have any grandchildren of my own, but I'm sort of like a grandmother, great aunt to about seven of my communal well, grandchildren and a sort of an aunt to, to four, how many, four or five other children. So it's been, it's been fabulous in that way. Um, you want to ask? I, should, I could keep going on, but I feel yeah, like I no, should. I do have um, questions. Um, how did you meet those families? Well, one of the women, two of us were actually English. Um, so I met after college. I went to live in England for a year with my um, grandmother. And then I met a woman who was very, we were sort of involved in early women's stuff. That's what we were involved with. That was the major, we were involved in women's health issues in New York City, especially because we saw that women's health was an issue that really did concern all women. So even if we were mostly middle-class women, which was the criticism that was often leveled at the women's movement at that time, health was something that everybody needed help on, you know, getting access to childcare, to birth control, and to abortion, although now we have to call it choice. But we, um, we were very active around uh, trying to outlaw the New York State abortion laws, which were, you couldn't get a legal abortion in New York State in the, in the 60s. Um, we all had children, that was the other thing, and we were all struggling for childcare. We couldn't, firstly, there were no daycare centers to speak of, and we couldn't and didn't want to afford a nanny. Only very, very, very rich people had nannies. Um, and so we were constantly juggling. We had childcare groups, babysitting groups, where you gave people, like, tokens, and then, you know, they owed you four hours, you owed them four hours. And that's how I raised my children, my son, for the first couple of years because my ex-husband was working full-time. There were very few options and a big prejudice against women who worked. It was very, very different. Um, and so that was the main thing, that we had to work out how we could raise our children with more help from the men and with help from each other. We also thought, and I was a young mother, I'd never had any, I'd never been raised with other children. Um, I was happy to have other people help me raise my children. I think more the attitude today is, I'm the one taking care of my children. We were, I was thrilled to have other people raise my children with me and see how they did it and what they did. Um, and I think the only issue really in the end was space because one marriage broke up and that woman got together with another guy who had two children, and we didn't have room for, that would have made eight children, we didn't have room for that. Um, so they eventually, that family moved out, moved up the street, we, made, we still remained very close to them, and did a lot of things together, and then two families lived together communally for the next seven years. And even when we broke up the commune, they moved upstairs, we put it back, 
to the two-family house it always was. We had meetings, we, had, we really had no political disagreements. There were some times when we felt one child or another needed a little discipline. And that was an issue, a real issue. I learned never to criticize what people did with their children, unless I thought it was really serious, but it never was that serious. So I think that we, we just, we, we all agreed to respect each other's privacy as much as possible. You know, if it was Sunday morning and people were reading the Times, you didn't talk to them. But, or you went up to your room to read the Times, you know. Um, we paid, the financial issues were really amazingly not an issue. We each paid the same amount every month, even though there was a slight variation in family size, you know, two adults, you know. And it was so much less I mean, I think it was $500 a month we paid, which covered all the house expenses, the mortgage, the loans, the taxes, the insurance, all the food, and of course all the childcare. Even for then, that was a little amount of money to spend. So even though we were hard pressed and there were constant maintenance issues, we somehow managed to never have a major issue with money, which was pretty amazing, really. And the only issues we had, really, as I said, were the aesthetic issues of what to put on the walls and um, occasionally a bit of difference around, well, again, how much you should spend for a rug for the living room, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. I used to sort of cheat a little bit and put in some of my own money. <laughs> so, I mean, it was just, an, but it was also a very different time because we were very involved in the block. So we helped organize block parties. We were very organized in the PTA. And we were very organized in sort of, we had baseball games in Prospect Park. It was a different time. You know, we saw organizing, we saw block parties as ways of sort of community outreach. A lot of lovely young people on my block today, but when they give a block party, it's just for the 10 people who decide to give it, you know. They don't put flyers in the apartment buildings and there's a bit of a owner-renter divide now has happened on the block, which really didn't exist in the past. I mean, they I don't think it did exist because none of us were, even those of us who lived in houses were not obviously wealthy, whereas now today the people who live, who buy the new houses, they're really wealthy. So it was, a, it was a different time. And I think then we didn't think communal living was so unusual. It made sense to share childcare. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Is, were there other families in the area that you knew of that were living? Well, you know, now that I think about it, not as many. I heard of, I knew of one other family. Um, and I knew of, of about two more. And some, I knew of some where there were no children. You know, it was just four adults, more like what you have today with flat sharing, you know. Um, but this was really done with a, I suppose, with a political agenda that it was preferable to living alone. And there was some notion of monogamy was not, didn't, wasn't really for the human condition, that people should be able to have, this would allow people, I mean, a cynical view. There's the good view of the commune, which would be that since there were Jewish, Jews and Christians in it, that the commune allowed some people to celebrate Christmas um, and some guys to have affairs, if I do have to put it that way, because that did happen. And it, put a, it did put a strain 
and eventually my relationship with my husband broke up um, sort of amicably in the end because it didn't leave us as desperate because there I was living in this house, which in fact a tiny bit of money from my grandmother had allowed me to, I sort of owned the house more than my ex-husband, so that made it, but he'd done thousands of dollars of work on it. But he, you know, just said, I have no claim to the house and moved two blocks away. And we, we got along just fine and so it was good. But it did mean that I wasn't sort of desperate when my husband, ex-husband and I broke up. And sometimes I see the young women today who've stopped working to raise their children. I do understand that, but I also think, wow, a lot of marriages end up in divorce, and what are you going to do if you have no foot in the, in the workplace, apart from your identity issues and earning your own money? Uh, it really, I think, we just had a buffer for the kids, and I think they would all agree. I mean, they would criticize sometimes when you hear them talk about how we were poor, so we had margarine, not butter, in the days when we thought margarine, and really these kids go on about that a bit. <laughs> wow, get a life. But um, on the whole, we really, we were pretty much all committed to making it work, and I think that's what made it work. We saw the, but it paid off such big time. You know, you'd leave for work in the morning, your good friend Alice or Rachel would be, holding your kid and waving to you from the window, and maybe the kid would cry for one minute, but then we're off, off and running playing. There was like a, a daycare center in the house and a basement that was great to play in, and I think all the kids would say it was a great way to grow up. But I think it's hard to... I've asked young women, because I've been so involved with my grandchildren that I meet in playgrounds, why don't you do this? And one of the answers is financial, that the pricing... Housing prices are so great that in order to buy a house, you need to have a rental unit that you can charge some outlandish amount of money for in order to pay the mortgage. But I also think it's more of a, it's also a psychological thing or a, there's a lot of pressure on young parents today and especially on women to be like perfect mothers. I think we all knew we weren't perfect mothers and that we could balance that by someone else you know, having another person there to take over. I mean, it was also great if your kid was sick, you didn't always, you didn't have to miss work if you weren't on. There's a famous story of a little boy who came down, the one who was a, a bit sometimes difficult. Um, my English friend was very strict. You know, if you wanted something at the dinner table, you said, Rachel, could you please pass the butter? You didn't reach and just grab it, right? <laughs> or you didn't take the muffin, eat half of it, and put it back. That manners. But um, so, so this little boy came down one day, and he, he was just dressed like his shoes weren't tied and his hair, you know, whatever. And instead of saying to his mother, Mom, you know, I need you, Mommy, to help me, he said to her, she was rushing off to work, who's on today? By which he meant to which adult should I go to have them tie my shoes? And I thought that was really great. And my friend feels guilty about that. I said, no, that's great. He recognized that one of us was there, and our job was, if you were on a tremendous amount of work, you got up early, you made breakfast for 11 people, sit-down breakfast, but they had great breakfast, you know, every day something different. You got the kids to school 
unless one of the working adults said, okay, I'll drop them off at 321. You uh, picked them up for lunch and brought them home. You took them back, you picked them up after school, you made dinner, it was a lot of work. You didn't do the cleanup. Maybe you did do the cleanup. It was a huge day of work, but then you were off the rest of the week, even though you were often around. I don't want it to make it. I was often around because I was a teacher. I was upstairs grading papers. So there was often somebody else at home to do backup. It wasn't like one person. The kid only saw the parent one day a week. It wasn't like that at all. And we all put our own kids to bed pretty much unless we worked late. But we were there for them a huge amount. But we also, you know, the older kids read to the younger kids. Lego was a huge thing. There was like a sea of Lego, a sea of Lego. And it was the old Lego where you didn't, it didn't come in sets, so you built your own. You know, you didn't, this wasn't like, uh, oh, this is Star Trek, build your starship. It was just build whatever you want to build. So it was very imaginative. And that we had huge color, we had huge art supplies. I mean, it was a fabulous way to grow up. And there was this basement, which in those days didn't get wet. We weren't getting the storms we get now. And they had a whole other world down there. That's what many of them would remember, the total privacy of the basement, because they were left, I mean, you left the door open. You could hear that they were okay, but in the basement, they were in their own world. And that was really... And then, you know, we had great celebrations, Christmas especially, Thanksgiving, very festive times. I mean, it's much nicer to come down to a Christmas tree with... Um, 60 presents under it, even though it only, it only adds up to four or five presents a person, but because there were so many people. It was very festive. I think that's been an adjustment for some of them. They're living with their spouse and one child, and there's only two, two presents passing over. So anyway, it broke up in 1985, and because two of the children were off to college, and one of the couples really wanted not so much more privacy, but they wanted to be able to have more friends stay over, and so they had the separate unit. As I said, just putting the house, it didn't cost much money, just put the house back into the two-family house it had always been. They just re-put the kitchen in, and the room that was a kitchen. We hadn't totally taken out the pipes or anything, you know. So it was, and then we continued to live still quite cooperatively in terms of all sorts of things and sharing electricity and heat and water and everything like that. I mean, I always said you couldn't live like this if you weren't willing to be generous about all the, the bills and everything. You just had to agree that whatever. Anyway, so if you can ask me something, I'll be happy. Yeah. I'm going to take you back a little bit. You, so you said you moved to New York to study? Well, I went to, when I was 18 and graduating high school in Toronto, my brother was going back to London to go to, grad, to, go to drama school. And my mother was, was saying that she was going to go back to London, although she did stay um, in Toronto until she retired. But I applied to university. I went to, I went to Radcliffe College at Cambridge, Massachusetts, and um, on, a total, on a total scholarship, I have to say. And then I sort of had to decide, was I going to go back to Toronto? But I wasn't Canadian. I hadn't become a Canadian. So I applied to, I got into Columbia Graduate School and I just came to New York City. What were you studying? English, I was an English major. And um, those were the days of, I, 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 I feel very badly for young people today. I got my whole education at two excellent schools for virtually $1,000. 
I got total scholarships, <laughs> which when I was an undergraduate was totally because my mother was a widow and wasn't working. At that time, she was very sick. But in, high, in college, it was just you, got, you did well enough, you got some fellowship. Mm-hmm. They paid for everything and gave you money. It's unbelievable, really, when you yeah. look at that. <laughs> so I had no college debt, mm-hmm. which is something that I think a real privilege, a real privilege. And I, you know, we made that the goal. I mean, actually living this way in the commune and then even sharing a house, we now are a co-op, was a very thrifty way to live. And we sort of decided that one of our goals would be to help our kids go to college debt-free. Mm-hmm. Because it, what, a, what a burden, what a burden student debt is. So I, but I also think because I didn't grow up with a perfect mother, because she was always working, and we were in foster homes, my brother and me, and then we were in boarding school, I didn't have incredible standards about what kind of mother I should be. At some point, I decided to learn to make chocolate chip cookies, because I, although I hate chocolate, because I thought this was the American mom thing. You had to make chocolate chip cookies. And I apparently make very good ones, which I have never, ever had one. <laughs> I have never tasted one of my chocolate chip cookies. But so, you know, and we, I, I just didn't have that, those high standards. I, I thought that, and very occasionally, when my son or my daughter would guilt trip me a little bit, I would think, you have both parents. You have all sorts of other people involved, you know get a life, you're very lucky. So I wasn't quite like, I mean, for instance, when my ex-husband and I broke up, and it was quite amicable, and he would live not very far away, and we had a rule of thumb. If one of us can go to the soccer game, that's fine. You don't need both parents at the soccer game. The other person could be having spending some time alone. I, I think that we didn't spoil the kids in that way. Um, but we gave them lots of attention, to say the least. It's funny, I have had a lot of thoughts about my childhood. It wasn't that typical for a, a middle class, person who ended up middle class, um, because my brother died recently and i sort of going through a lot of it. But uh, I just, I think that in the end, I had a certain toughness to the world, which was good, because when I got to Harvard and Radcliffe, I really needed it because I was faced with real privilege. I had never quite encountered that. Although not as much privilege as, there weren't as many rich, rich, rich people in those days. And people, well, people didn't go on the kind of vacations they go on, you know, and they didn't fly all over the world to ski and everything. So even at Harvard, I didn't know any, there were very wealthy people, but I didn't, you didn't have to know them. They didn't dominate in any way. So I just think that the, and it was an exciting time, the 60s, you know, very, whatever people, you know, there's a lot of bad mouthing of the 60s, but everybody I know who went through it with me ended up in some sort of vaguely useful job. You know, I don't know anybody who went into banking or into stock, you know, making, being hedge funders. They were all in social services, teaching, justice, you know, social justice. It was a good time, you know. Not to say this isn't a good time, too, I don't like it, but I just think it was a very different time. There was a feeling of, well, there was the war to fight against, you know, and as it turns out, we were right about the war. It was a disastrous war, big mistake, (laughs) terrible policies, 
In fact, we were more right than we knew, you know. Anyway, you better ask me something because I'm running <laughs> out of steam. Um, what are the changes that you've seen in this neighborhood in the time that you've lived here? Well, it's gotten much wealthier. I mean, when we moved in, people almost, it, especially our block, the park blocks were always okay, but still, all the, all the houses were rooming houses. They were all, you, you wouldn't know it from looking at the brownstone facades, and some of them still are, actually. But we had one, two, three, four, five, we have about five small apartment blocks, so we always had a mix of renters and people who lived there. When we first moved into the block, the neighborhood was totally Irish, Irish Catholic. Um, and when we first moved into the block, there was some anti-Semitism. Um, I remember an incident where I was lighting the menorah. I wasn't Jewish, but I was the one who lit the menorah with the kids. And I heard someone scream, Jews on 6th Street, and I pushed the kids down because I half expected a rock through the window. Mm -hmm. um, and the big Catholic church across the street, St. Saviour's, which has much improved, but in those times, it offered nothing in the way of services to the community, no childcare, no summer camp. And they were some, uh, uh, somewhat annoyed at the hippies who were moving in, you know, living in a commune. And we weren't, the, there were other people on the street, you know, who occasionally sat on their stoop smoking a marijuana cigarette. They were, um, they were aware of the change, but once it turned out that we took care, you know, once they saw that we were taking care of the place, they eased up. But then it just became, this, and the school 321 was much more, in a strange way, more racially mixed and more economically mixed because it was a Title I school. So because it was a Title I school, there were something like three to four teachers got a, a free time every day, so they had to provide what do you do with the kids in that free time. So my son had music, dance, all sorts of things that my daughter, when she went to the school 10 years later, never had because it wasn't a poor school anymore. So the PTA had to fund that, it wasn't provided. So in some ways he got, I thought, a better education in that way. He didn't get a better education in terms of the school has become so much more enlightened about pedagogy. But the neighborhood has become just much more wealthy and more people, I would say, less community spirit, you know, more, I don't want to complain about the children of Park Slope, but I think a lot of children are being raised to be not as aware of others as our children were raised, you know. Don't bump into people, you know, apologize to people, don't make noise in restaurants, just that sort of thing. Um, I think that it is just a different time. Uh, you know, uh, there are block parties and there are social involved, but I don't think people are as involved because I think even though we all worked and many women worked, you saw kids played on the street. You could still let kids play on the street. You know, you could even let your kids um, well, I don't know when we first let them go to Prospect Park. They could walk to school on their own. That wasn't a big deal, to see a group of kids walking to school. Now, it's almost never do you see that. And when you drive to the neighborhood, I, I remember once, uh, last spring, I was driving from a doctor in Queens. It was a beautiful early spring day, and I drove through 
you know, Bed-Stuy and Brownsville, and I saw these children playing on the street, you know, hopscotch. And the closer I got to Park Slope, in Park Slope, there wasn't a kid on the street because they were all in fencing and after school. You know, the kids' time is much more programmed. I mean, I don't think my son took one after-school activity, and my daughter took... He came home, he played on the street, played stickball, played... Um, and my daughter took, I think, one class. It just... I think it's about children, women working more, but also the ethos that children have to be totally stimulated and given all these opportunities, which I think is contributing to the whole, we talk a lot about the financial economic equity divide, but I think there's a huge divide between children, the enrichment they're getting that poor parents just can't do. I think it's very, so poor kids end up you know, at schools here, teachers in grade one and kindergarten would say, there's no problem teaching reading. They all know how to read. Whereas I think in poorer schools, that's a real issue. I, you know, that's a different time, you know. And I think uh, the neighborhood was once, people used to tell me how their parents sold their house on 10th Street to move to Staten Island. Now they wish they had it back, you know. Because it was, their houses were run down, and sometimes I read about the neighborhood. I think, gee, was it really that dangerous? The underground was a wreck. Mm-hmm. You know, things have improved in New York, and it was nowhere near as green. I mean, the park was kind of still um, trying to survive what Robert Moses had done. You know, putting cement everywhere, and it was it was in very very bad shape. Prospect Park Alliance was amazing. So, anything well, else? Almost a half an hour. Is okay. there anything else you'd like to add? Um, no, I, ju- I think that just to say that it, I, I wish more people could think of doing this. I think their lives would be a lot easier, although there are always the pressures of finding the right group of people. Because actually, once you think about it, there's everybody could be annoying to you. But I think that's what we did was we really rose above that level of pettiness because we saw the greater good. And we're all pretty much friends today, except one of us is dead, but you know. All right, so I'm hoping to write it up. I have it written up, so then I'll let you have that. Yeah, right. Well, thank you very much. No, it was great. It was great. I have to go home and start looking through files. <laughs>